Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Well, welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner, and our engineer is Anita Brockington. Our guest tonight is an expert on Druids, the ancient Celtic class of religious leaders, legal authorities, lore keepers, medical professionals, and political advisors. Now, for many years, I've been fascinated by this culture, who were described in the 4th century BCE by Julius Caesar and other Roman writers, the Druid orders were suppressed by the Roman government under a, the 1st century Roman emperors and had disappeared from the written record by the 2nd century. I wanted to know the facts about the Druids. I finally found a book on this subject that I could trust. It's called Secrets of the Druids, from Indo-European Origins to Modern Practice, and the author, Teresa Cross, is our guest for two hours tonight. After reading it, I discovered how much I had been misinformed. I have to admit, this book was a great challenge, in particular due to the many words in Gaelic, Irish, Welsh languages, etc. I guarantee I will embarrass myself a couple of times tonight, or maybe more than that, because I have to struggle through them. But I am so happy I did, because it was well worth the struggle to relearn everything I thought I already knew. Drawing on comparative mythology and linguistics, archaeological evidence and etymology, Teresa Cross offers readers a comprehensive course in the history and development of the Celtic spiritual tradition and its lore, reconstructing the Druidic faith from the remnants that have survived and the dedicated study of scholarly sources. She also reveals parallels with other Indo-European traditions, such as the similarities between Celtic and Vedic Hindu beliefs and practices. She chronicles the ethics and spiritual teachings of Druidism and the Celtic faith and examines what happened to these beliefs during centuries of Christianization. 
Teresa Cross has been a Celtic scholar since 1982 and was a member of numerous Celtic cultural organizations, including the Scottish Society of Dallas, Southwest Celtic Music Association, Clan Mackenzie Society, and the Irish PEC. She is the author of the Truth About the Druids, and a frequent contributor to the Independent Celt. She lives in Kingman, Arizona. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Teresa Cross. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed reading your book. It was a little tough for me, but I really enjoyed it. Druids... Uh, I hope it wasn't too tough. Uh, uh, Yeah, I jam-packed as much information as I could into this book. You sure did. And I originally, <laughs> originally wrote it about 30, a little over 30 years ago. And it was published by Llewellyn, and it was rushed, and it, they did a they, they did a okay job on it. But uh, this time, um, a new edition, uh, they decided to call it Secrets of the Druids. And uh, uh, despite... The title, the secrets, one of the secrets of the Druids is that they didn't probably realize themselves that they were in, they were an inheritors of an Indo-European tradition. I don't know if they could have been aware of it or not, but uh, certainly the word Indo-European as a name for that language family was not created until the late uh, 18th century. Uh, in 19th century, so given that, I will I will reveal what the biggest secret of the druids are or is rather um, later on in the program because it has to deal with uh, a class of poets called the Fili, F-I-L-I or F-I-L-I-D-H-E in more modern Irish, um, who were poets, but the word originally meant seer, and we'll find out more about them as we go. Well, druids and their magic lure and rituals fascinate everyone with images of standing stones, mistletoe, golden sickles, white robe priests, and powerful sorcerers, but who were they really? Tell us, Teresa, who were the Celtic people's and who were the Druids? Well, nowadays, people who are descended from Gaelic-speaking Irish and Scots Gaels of the Highlands and Islands, the uh, uh, Welsh and uh, modern Irish and modern Scottish Gaelic and uh, uh, the revived Cornish, which is similar to Welsh, and Breton, uh, Brittany, Breton, uh, you may have heard of. They're, they are Celts. And now the Galicians of northwestern uh, Spain and just north of Portugal uh, claim Celtic heritage, although the language that was spoken in ancient times died to Latin. And, of course, uh, Galician languages, also known as Gallego. But they want to count themselves as Celts, so we count them. (laughs) And, of course, uh, but if you're going to do that, places where Celtic languages were spoken, 
later were wiped out by Latin include Gaul, which is France, Belgium, and Switzerland. And uh, Gaulish was a P-Celtic language. I'll get to that, the difference between P-Celtic and Q-Celtic. Julius Caesar, of all the uh, classical commentaries, has the, the, in my opinion, the best information on Gaulish Druids um, because he knew a Druid named Visiacus of the uh, Idui, who in 60 B.C. came to the Roman Senate because they were having trouble out of neighbors. They wanted to join the Roman Empire and address the Roman Senate in 60 B.C., Divitiacus himself came there. Um, he was turned down for help from Rome, and Cicero wrote about it because he said a, a couple lines about Divitiacus and his uh, training. Um, so then when Caesar came into Gaul, the Idui were trying were 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 a tribe that was having problems with invaders from the north and east of them, and they wanted to uh, set up an alliance with Caesar. And uh, they did, but uh, Visiox's own brother, Dumnorix, um, ended up getting assassinated. um, executed by Caesar. Well, who were the Druids? The Druids were the learned class of uh, the Celtic peoples. And a lot of uh, past antiquity and antiquarian writing uh, wanted to say that the word Druid meant oak seer. Mm-hmm from what would have been Deru, uh, Derwolf, plus uh, Wade, meaning to see, there would be oak seers. But that isn't the etymology of it. The word Drew in uh, Druid is a prefix meaning strong, steadfast, and unbending. Strong, and, steadfast. And Wade, meaning to see, is part of it. Mm-hmm. Where did they come from? Well, there are... There's a root of DNA uh, going from the Indo-European homeland across the, the south part of Europe going all the way to the west coast. Spain, uh, and the northern, uh, northwestern places like the coastline of Gaul and the British Isles. And um, there's a nice book by, uh, Ma- uh, what was her name? Let me see. There's a book in front of me here. Jean Manko. And 
it's about called Bloodlines of the Celts. Mm. As you could read about that if you mm-hmm. want to know about that end of it, having to do with DNA and where they uh, migrated. Then there's a John W. Koch, Koch or Koch. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name because that can be pronounced in many ways. Yeah. K-O-C-H. And he said that Celtic was a, a language that developed in um, the east, that west coast of Europe and intruded in toward Gaul and Central Europe. But that is a very controversial uh, uh, theory and not accepted by all Celtic scholars. The other is a more traditional or conventional view is that the Celts came from uh, Indo-Europeans that settled uh, Central Europe and the language developed about 2,000 years before the Christian era. Mm-hmm. And um, it's about the same time that the so-called Aryans of India had migrated all the way to um, the uh, um, from the west to east, following uh, the Indo-Iranian people's movement that way from Eastern Europe, and they were very, very conservative in keeping traditions, and so were on the west side of the Indo-European. Uh, uh, you know, lambs were uh, the uh, Celts. Now, mm-hmm. there are similarities, great similarities between uh, Hindu Vedic tradition and uh, what we can uh, put together a Celtic tradition from the scraps of knowledge that we have. But what do we really know about the Druids and their practices? Well, according to Julius Caesar, Druids presided over sacrifices. So in order to get at the rituals of sacrifices, we got sources such as the classical commentators who sometimes exaggerate things and even make up things about the Celts that uh, were to foster either a noble savage type idea of them Mm -hmm. or to make them look as barbaric as they could yeah so they had uh, uh, they had a problem with the Celts then it would show up in their work later there was the Alexandrian school who said all kinds of made up a lot of romantic things about the Druids Uh, one of the things that some of the scraps of information that you get from Roman and Greek commentators are uh, about Druids doing human sacrifice. And there is some evidence that in times of great trouble, they did sacrifice uh, to their divinities. And But they had um, uh, re- they did that in times of great peril and turmoil, and they did that for the sake of uh, really, really, really serious uh, problems going on in their 
in, in terms of warfare, like prisoners of war mm-hmm. and people caught in the act of doing something that had a death penalty to it, they would be the ones uh, sacrificed. Unfortunately, so human sacrifice is actually true, and we got evidence for it. Well, we have to do a little sacrificing right about now, taking a break here on 21st Century Radio. Find more about our guests on the Facebook page for 21st Century Radio. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more after this. This is Robert Mouse, author of Dreaming of Soul Back Home and other books about getting yourself together and living a deeper, juicier life. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. What a fantastic host he is. He's lively. He's questing. He knows that story can be the shortest route between a human being and the truth. Listening to this show, you'll hear many stories, and you might just wake up to the deeper story of your life and find the courage and the will to follow that, and that will change everything. Thank you for staying with us. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and we return now to our guest. Secrets of the Druids, from Indo-European origins to modern practices, a second edition, this one is, revised edition of the Sacred Cauldron Inner Traditions. Find a link to her website and order her book from 21st Century Radio Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel, etc., etc., etc. Okay. Hi. Are you still there, dear? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes, I am. <laughs> commercials are commercials. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, did did the Celts and the East Indians have any contacts in prehistoric times? Not that we know of. And, uh, you know, by the time Indo-Europeans had branched out geographically all over Europe and all the way into Iran and India and into all the way to the Ural Mountain of uh, what was now Russia. Um, we uh, know that Indo-Europeans branched off into many different uh, peoples as their languages, you know, changed over the centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have, you know, for example, the Baltic people, the Lithuanians and Latvians, and the old Prussians who were later... Uh, Germanicized by the Germans, and then we had the Slavic people, such as Russian and Polish and Ukrainian and so forth. And of course, we had some languages die out, like Phrygian and Illyrian and so forth. And they were Indo-European. And I can kind of, uh, I like to give people lists of the numbers one through ten in Indo-European languages, so they can hear how similar they sound from one language to the other. Would you do that for us? uh, Yeah, for uh, Celtic, let's say we'll do uh, Irish. In, da, tri, kahar, kui, she, shak, aha, and a a dek, dek meaning ten. We go to Latin, we get unos, duo, tres, quat, four, quinque, sex, septum, octo, non, decum. Notice the similarity uh, as it drifts. You go to uh, Gothic, a Germanic language that died out uh, in uh, Eastern Europe and Crimea was the last place. And they said, eins, twi, 
Andreas Edward then six uh, seven uh, Oxo Neon Tehon. That meant one through ten. And you can notice some of the similarities with even English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then in Sanskrit, it's Eka Dva Trias Chatvaras Pancha Sasata Nava Dasa. So um, you notice the similarity there. Um, and then, of course, Proto Indo European itself. Let's see, it goes Oinos, uh, uh, Dual. Trace, Trace, uh, Quetwaters, Penque, Swix, Septum, Octo, Neon, uh, uh, Decum. So, similarity in that. Thank you very much on that. You notice the similarity between those sounds? Yes, I did. I did. Of course, I read your entire book, so I began to see some of those myself. You know, one of the things that I think um, I learned, uh, there's so much I learned from you, and I really do appreciate your scholarship. It really, uh, you know, some of the books that I had read earlier concerning the Druids, uh, they sounded really very nice, but I had some doubts about them. Uh, they were a little bit too flowery in some areas. But what kind of deities did the Celtic peoples worship? Well, they were polytheists, like most uh, peoples were in those days. They believed in many gods and goddesses, and uh, they worshipped them with sacrifices and offerings. Uh, the Celts weren't, uh, didn't anthropomorphize their uh, deities uh, as much as uh, uh, some of the other Europeans did, and they used crudely... Uh, carved wood and probably set up uh, a few idols in some groves or nematons. And the Greeks were really into anthropomorphizing their their gods, making them look very human, and they were yet they were superhuman. And because of that, we we have all these images of what, you know, Aphrodite looked like or Zeus, depicted as a man with a long hair and long beard holding a spear that he made uh, lightning out of. And so uh, that's the sensibilities of the Greeks, and the Romans kind of adopted some of the Greek customs Although their deities were not exactly the same as that of the Greeks, they uh, syncretized them. This is also what they did in Gaul. When they saw a Gaulish divinity, they uh, equated it with something that was familiar to them in the Roman pantheon. And Caesar did that in his De Bello Gallico, or his Gaulish War mm-hmm. book. Um, so uh, the kind of deities that the Celts had is one has his name on every on nearly every section of Western Europe has a name has the name Lugus formed into uh, place names like Lyon 
which is called Lugudunum in Latin, from the Gaulish Lugudunum. And uh, that became the capital of Gaul for a long time, although the Druids had made uh, the center uh, Carnutus, which is now called Chartres. Uh, in French, but uh, the Irish are the ones that set their mythology down. But when they set it down to writing, they euhemerize the divinities as heroes and people in their past uh, with a succession of five invasions of Ireland in the so-called Yawar Gawala Aaron which means a book of the takings or invasions of Ireland. And some scholars disagree that the Celts had an international pantheon, uh, although it looks like a pantheon in the Largawala Aaron. Their deity names like Lua, the long arm, uh, appears in there, and I equate him, he's like a Celtic version of Zeus because he kills his own uh, grandfather in a battle with Baller the Evil Eye. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like Zeus winning uh, his Olympian uh, siblings, liberating them from Kronos, who had in turn had liberated the Titans from Uranus, Uranus. And... uh, there's a lot of striking similarities in the stories, and they're usually structurally similar. So um, I could go on about that. Would you would you go on just a little bit more? Because this is very interesting to me. Well, for example, uh, the uh, ideology of the Indo-Europeans was about the hierarchy of people, of classes of society. Mm -hmm. In other words, they had a stratified society. And with the the priest crafts or priesthoods being at the top with the king of the uh, territory, and then you would have the class of the warrior nobles. And then after that, under that would be the the free farmers and herders. And then they're called food producers, or usually called free, the free class. And then you had under them the vassals, of, and which would be include, they were like serfs of the Middle Ages, or like slaves. Mm-hmm. And they were a servile caste. They did their work directly for the farmers and, and uh, herdsmen. Now, that, in turn... given by uh, the great George de Maisel, he called that the tripartite ideology in which uh, classes uh, had gods that represented the whole class. For example, with the Teutonic uh, Norsemen, uh, they had Odin, Odin, Thor, Freya, and Freya, with their warrior god being Thor. And their uh, uh, the class of the uh, Vanir, which is Freya and Freya, 
representing fertility and fecundity of the of the farmer and herdsman. And that is uh, among the Celts. There's a a uh, motif of uh, when they are naming the Tuha de Donan, which is the name of the uh, peoples of the goddess Donna. They are talking about what may be a uh, forming pantheon that the Healy and, and uh, historians were trying to form for Ireland. They always say the formula is Lu, Nuida, Nuida the silver arm, and then there's uh, the uh, Ogmios, Ogma, inventor of Boam, and or Ogum. And then you have the third class, which is the the free herders and and uh, farmers, and they would have uh, the Dida or Dagda, as it's sometimes mispronounced, <laughs> and uh, the uh, uh, and perhaps Breed Bridget, whose holiday was just celebrated here recently. Oh, Bridget, um, yes, yes, yeah, Breed. Uh, Breed or Bridget uh, was also a saint in the in the early church. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's a lot to say about Bridget, whether we're talking about the goddess or whether we're talking about the saint. But they kind of they kind of overlap in the stories, and that makes us suspect that the. Saint Bridget may have been a euhemized version of the goddess Bridget. I see. I see. Yeah. And but that's unclear. Most scholars uh, remark about it, but they have not solved whether that is exactly what she was. But Breed was a powerful goddess, and it means the high one. In uh, going back to an Indo-European root. Uh, and also, they worshipped Epona, uh, the horse goddess of uh, Gaul, who became so popular among Roman soldiers, they even invoked her. So, uh, and Epona actually uh, goes back into European Epona, Epona. And uh, so we know they're of Indo-European origin because their names have an etymology to go back. So far, even in Sanskrit, they had a, a goddess they called uh, Brihati, mm. and uh, means the same thing, the high mm-hmm. one, the exalted one. The high one, one. yeah. Well, right and now, it, we got to take another break here, unfortunately, but uh, hold on to our hats out there, because the uh, next question I'm going to be asking deals with, uh, uh, are there any modern druidy? or Celtic groups that you could recommend. I'm sure a lot of our listeners right now are thinking about that about now. We'll be right back right after these messages. Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. Karen Tate. I'm the author of Goddess Calling, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology, and the radio show host of Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio on Blog Talk. My website is www.karentate.com. And you've been listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. 
I hope you'll read my books and discover why the spirituality of the sacred feminine is today's new liberation theology, setting us free from the domination and exploitation of patriarchy and how that patriarchy has kept women and men from achieving their fullest potential. Thank you for staying with us. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and we return now to our guest. Let me give a little mistake that I made some time ago, Teresa. One book that I loved for such a long time was Robert Graves' The White Goddess. Now, I uh, had a great deal of respect for Mr. Graves, but I had little, I, I understand now, uh, there's some, seems to be, uh, he was writing a, an example of poetic speculation. Is that true? Oh, that's what he called it. But did you know that later in his life he repudiated that work? I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. I'm glad he did. Uh, when he was retired, I think he was living in uh, uh, Spain. Um, I think that's where he retired to. I'm not sure. He repudiated the book uh, when a fan wrote to him and said, Oh, this is great. And, went on and on, and he finally wrote back, well, it was a crazy book, and I didn't intend to write it. <laughs> that was the exact quote of him. Sounds like some politicians and, today. Uh, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, he sure had an influence on feminist uh, neo-paganism, mm -hmm. but the mistake he made is that he didn't understand uh inter-European comparative uh, philology. And uh, a lot of people get in trouble when they start experimenting with it. Even I have had my doubts on whether the name loom comes from a inter-European root meaning like, uh, light, L-I-G-H-T, or whether it came uh, from a root meaning to, sw to swear, as to swear an oath. And I've changed my views on that and followed that uh, latest uh, etymology because it makes sense. If Lou is the god of oath that you had sworn an oath to, then certainly his power had to do with contracts and agreements and uh, information like that. In the story, he uh, perpetuates... Uh, well, he's, he's of both Fomorian and Dagonan heritage, which, uh, and the structure of that myth is that he, he follows his father's people, who is uh, Dagonan, rather than a Fomor. Mm -hmm. Fomors are a strange race. They're considered giants. They're considered uh, one-eyed, one-armed, and one-legged, which has kind of a serpentine uh, attraction mm -hmm. to their form. But what they did was force the Dagonans into hard labor, and they were oppressed. And so the, the gods over uh, had, a, had a battle with them and won. But uh, the other part of the story is Nuda, the silver arm, is... Uh, was injured and his arm was was uh, replaced by uh, a uh, an actual prosthetic arm provided by the god Dientek, 
and Dan Peck gives him a silver arm with silver hands, and thus his name is uh, uh, called in Welsh, which means there's a silver arm or silver hand, and then in Irish he's called Nuda uh, Arrogant Love, which means the silver hand. Mm-hmm. So later it was restored all the way to uh, a, a uh, human hand, you know, form, and uh, uh, there's some stories that go with that. And Lou and the long arm Nuda seem to appear to be the champion. Uh, leader of the gods, and there's a story of how Lou was hidden as a child from his grandfather. That again reminds us of Zeus. Yes, yes. Uh, so there's a lot of parallels between Irish mythology and the Lower Gawala Aaron, but there's uh, uh, parallels with Greek mythology a lot, and there's the Islands of the West, uh, where there's the Hesperides, and uh, in Greek mythology, and we have the Irish uh, counterpart to it. One of the things I want to bring up is uh, I don't know how you feel about this is the uh, doctrine of reincarnation. Yes, let's let's uh, uh, enlighten us in this area, please. Because you know we have these islands where there's Chernobyl. Uh, Tear Tarngeta, there's uh, um, various other places like the land of the apples, the apple orchards of Alamaka, I mean, uh, what's it called um, in Irish? The uh, land of Mananon McLear, where he uh, includes the Feast of Age. But we got all these stories, and they structurally... Uh, suggestive world similar to Greek mythology and then similar to Hinduism mm. uh, in that the uh, reincarnation is in transmigration of souls is mentioned a lot by classical antiquity as the doctrine that the Druids came up with to give bravery to soldiers in battle. And they believed in it so highly that they uh, promised to pay their debts into the next world, they get killed <laughs> or die. That's quite an advantage. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they uh, so they wholeheartedly believed in life after death. That human souls went uh, from one place to another, or one or from one to another. A Caesar can be translated on, but. Unlike Hinduism, we don't have a uh, a doctrine of samsara and rebirth. You know the you know that uh, your judge, your karma uh, adds up with what you will be in the next life, mm-hmm. and the object of it is moksha, liberation from samsara. But we don't have that in the Celtic religion, at least not from the myth that we can draw from and. Uh, medieval Irish tradition, and we don't, we don't, we never made it really completely clear uh, by the classical authors talking about Gauls and their beliefs. 
So all we can say is that they had a form of reincarnation. Now, in my previous book, I had called it metagenetic uh, rebirth through family lines, which is like inheriting your soul. Mm. But uh, that's more of a Teutonic belief than a uh, Celtic one. That, that, that appears in Norse myth. So I uh, redid that chapter and talked about it in terms of we don't have a medieval comprehensive belief in reincarnation, obviously, so of, of Gaelic, Irish, and Scottish Gaelic tradition. But there is one thing that kind of hints at something is uh, of that nature is in the song Loch Lomond, where it's about soldiers who've been captured by the British in a war uh, that took place near Carlisle, mm. and uh, he says, the singer sings, you'll tack the high road and I'll tack the low road, which means one's going to be executed and the other gets to go home free. That's the one taking the high road. Mm. The one taking the low road is going to be executed, but he says he'll be in Scotland before him mm. oh, because that... he'll travel as a spirit, it's like which is an interesting explanation on that. Well, are there... Any modern Druidy or Celtic groups that you recommend? Well, um, uh, let me see. We've got uh, one of the people I acknowledge in my book was uh, Donald Irvin, who uh, runs the Sylvan Celtic Fellowship and uh, out of North Carolina and... Uh, that's, that's, that's a good organization. There's some other organizations. Uh, there's the ADF, or Andrea Payne, which means Our Own Druidism, which uh, is, has got some uh, groups in the United States. And then uh, I participated a bit with and corresponded with the Craig Goldick uh Celtic uh, Holvedel, which is a, a Breton group that has druids, and uh, they go back to the Bardic druids of the 19th century, uh, like OBOD over in England, uh, Bard, Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. And, uh, but uh, let me see, and... Uh, I could think of a few others, but I, I can't remember their names. But uh, there's a lot of Druid groups in the uh, world. Uh, the uh, Druids of Quebec um, are enthusiastic followers of the Indo-European tradition, and they uh, are kind of kind of work with the uh, the Druids of Brittany. Um, and then there's some new ones popping up in Ireland, so I have to be, uh, I'd have to research it to get the names of them. I think there's the Druid Order of Ireland, and then there's some other, some other writers who have done what we call Celtic Reconstructionism, which are, uh, trying to, now for some reason... 
people are scared of the Indo-European hypothesis. Um, but uh, I don't understand that. Uh, but a lot of people just don't understand uh, how important the Indo-European past is because it is from that which Celtic sprung out of as one of the traditions. And, you know, and uh, for some reason we Celts are so popular nowadays with a lot of people who are not of Celtic cultural heritage but have adopted it. Why do you, um, why do you think that is? Um, there's a lot of mystery and romanticism mm-hmm. attached to the idea of the Druids of being very powerful priesthood. But to live in a society like that uh, is just does not appeal to most people. I mean, and to reconstruct the society that they lived in is would be tribal and socially stratified. It's very antithesis of of uh, what we have in modern day uh, first world countries. We don't we don't have tribalism and uh, petty kings and stuff like that. So it only they could only do it ceremonially. You know, they they wouldn't be able to do it in actuality. We have a ceremonial break coming up right now on 21st Century Radio at the top of the hour with our guest, Teresa Cross. Secrets of the Druids from Indo-European Origins to Modern Practices, second edition, revised edition of the Secret Cauldron, Inner Traditions. Find a link to her website and order her book from 21stCenturyRadio.com. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner, and our engineer is Anita Brockington. Again, our guest tonight is an expert on Druids and the ancient Celtic class of religious leaders, legal authorities, lore keepers, etc., etc., etc. It's Teresa Cross, and the book is The Secrets of the Druids. From Indo-European Origins to Modern Practices, Second Edition, Revised Edition of the Sacred Cauldron Inner Traditions. Find a link to her website and order her book from 21stCenturyRadio.com. Facebook page. That's right. Now, let's see. Teresa, uh, Dr. Stephen E. Flowers said that this book is written from within Druidism. What does that mean? Well, uh, at the time that I wrote the book, I was a practicing Druid. I retired from it uh, decades later and uh, and uh, changed my faith to being Catholic, and then eventually I became an Episcopalian. Uh, so... I uh, I no longer worship the the old gods, but I still have the knowledge of it. So, uh, in fact, I'm working on a book on Celtic Christianity now, which uh, may take up where Secrets of the Druids leaves off, you know, and how they how they integrated Christianity into the Celtic ideology of Ireland, and then eventually Scotland, and then. It came down to Northumbria, too. Oh. 
out would be interesting. Um, but, uh, yeah, from within the, the mindset of, uh, of the Druids, of the Celts, um, and, uh, frankly, I, I, uh, I find, I still find the, the, uh, ancient antiquities of the languages and what happened among the Celtic peoples is because my own heritage is Scottish, Irish, Welsh, and there's a little bit of English and uh, French in there too, but I am mainly, uh, I identify with Scotland mm-hmm. as my ethnic heritage, and I speak some Gaelic, Scottish Gaelic, um, and know a lot of old Irish and Irish phrases and stuff too, but, uh, yeah, uh, Stephen Flowers uh, minored in uh, Celtic and studied Old Irish under Ruth Lehman at UT Austin mm-hmm. back in the, uh, I guess that would have been the 70s or 80s. Um, and my academic credentials is that I studied literature and got a BA in that and then worked on a master's in education. So, well, let's, that may explain it. Uh, that, yeah, it sure does. Well, what languages are part of the Celtic branch of the Indo-European family? Well, in ancient times, Gaulish was a major language because it was spoken from in France, Belgium, and Switzerland, and it had made its way into Asia Minor, Turkey, as we call it today, there was the Galatians that are spoke of in the in the New Testament. They actually might have been bilingual when uh, uh, in Greek and Gaulish during the time that Saint Paul had converted them to Christianity. Uh, we know from Saint Jerome, which is uh, the Latinization of your very name, Hieronymus. That's correct. Uh, he. Uh, St. Jerome uh, found that they were still speaking Gaulish and Trier, the Treveri, as he called them. And Trier is now in Germany, but it was on the border of Gaul and was kind of an important city at the time. But that was up, that was in the 5th century. I mean, I go, go all the way up into the turn of the century, from 5th century to the 6th century of uh, the Common Era. And... Uh, so that's it. I find that intriguing that he said he made a comparison of the Gaulish of the Galatians with the Gaulish of Trier. So uh, I would think that they have been dialects of some form of Gaulish, be Celtic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been inscriptions that have, and lead tablets that have uh, turned up in, in the ancient Gaulish language. So I thought some people were kind of attracted to that, so I put an appendix in the Secrets of the Druids in which there's a, uh, a simplified Gaulish grammar. That's helpful. In there. And um, uh, the first edition had a lot of Gaulish and sea Celtic in it, and uh, I dropped it in favor of Old Irish and used Old Irish for the terminology in the book. Who were so, the... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
Go ahead. Who were the Proto-Indo-Europeans? Um, that's a controversial subject. Uh, the homeland has been thought of as being uh, in what is now Russia and Ukraine era, area of Eastern Europe, and uh, it spread westward and it spread eastward. There was a people called the Scythians, S-C-Y-T-H-I-A-N-S, uh, who lived in that part of the world later, uh, and their language was related to old Persian. Oh. And they, had a, they may have had an influence on the Gauls because they invented pants for riding in oh. uh, wearing yeah. trousers instead of wearing robes. And uh, do, do you remember? They also, go ahead. Do you remember uh, what, what time that was? How many decades or centuries ago that was? Uh, pants. They would have been. They were uh, in that region from uh, 500 BC in that in that time all the way up to the Christian era. Uh, into the times, because some Scythians may have been converted to Christianity via the Goths, mm-hmm. uh, who are Germanic people who went out east like that and may have uh, intermixed with Scythians, because we have survival of people descended from the Scythians in uh, the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, they're called the uh, Ossets, O-S-S-E-T-S, and... Uh, they are descended from Scythian-like tribes, and uh, is that they how? became Orthodox Christians. Huh? Is that how we know so much about them? We know a lot from Greek commentating on them, like Herodotus, probably about 300 B.C., something something around, around that time period. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but there was trade with them, and there was... Uh, um, we just, they didn't carry any written records at all, so we, well, all we know is from oral tradition that mm-hmm. was handed down among the Sarmatians, Scythians, and mm-hmm. people known as the Alans, another tribe. In fact, it was the kingdom of Alania, and they, uh, but they ended up being mostly, uh, you call it their called Iran and Digor, and the uh, Iran people are Christian, and the Digor people are um, uh, Muslim. Yeah, that's right. And um, that's the modern and uh, descendants. Um, they did preserve an epic called the Naryumanga epic, uh, in which there was a couple of Narts, and there was a a quest for various things, and it resembles in many ways Arthurian tradition. Um, how does one become a modern-day druid? Well, I would recommend they become as knowledgeable as they can on that kind of lore. And it takes, it took in, in the time that Caesar was writing about the Gauls and the Britons, 
he said it took up to 20 years to become a druid. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we have in the Irish record is the Fildi uh, taking about 15 years of curriculum. So they were trained from, from the time they were young onward. This is according to what level that you wanted to be. Uh, there was the uh, Watis, V-A-T-E-S, uh, which short were the prophets, is the one who did the prognosticating and forecasts of what would happen and what might happen. Okay, so... And usually prophets. Oh, You mentioned a little bit about your education and how it relates to Druid, the Druid book. Uh, could you tell us more about your education as it relates to the Druid book? Because this is one of the things I'm so impressed by in your work and why it's so accurate. Well, as an undergraduate I at UT uh, Dallas, I studied uh, interdisciplinary things. Just because I was going for a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature, I spent a lot of time taking classes on things I was interested in, too. And one of them was mythology, another was linguistics, another was uh, uh, literature of, of antiquity. And uh, all, that, all that contributed to giving me the tools to do my own research. So... I took advantage of that. Uh, but my profession was that I was an English teacher, and I was teaching 12th grade English. When I finally uh, uh, got tired of it, I decided they were putting in metal detectors for the students oh, who yes. had brought weapons into the school, and mm-hmm. I decided, well, maybe I should get out of this and do something with civil <laughs> service. I guess so. So I went to work for the... Internal Revenue Service and worked there for over 11 years. And uh, How did but, you find uh, that? How did you find working uh, with the Internal Revenue? How did, how did it work out? How did I find it? No, how did it how work did out I, for what you? What did I thought of? Yeah. It was very... It, it, uh, the more I progressed in it, the harder the job got until finally... And I was going through a divorce and I had a... Uh, nervous breakdown from it that uh, I quit from that point on and retired. Mm-hmm. But you have a strong... Was, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It was a very stressful job. Yes, I, mean, I would imagine. Probably still is. Yeah. Things would change every time we got a new commissioner, so, you know... I worked during the Bill Clinton era and uh, later the Bush. And uh, I have no idea what it was during Trump's administration. Well, you have a strong connection, and you mentioned this before, to your Scottish and Irish heritage. How has that that shaped your interest? Has that shaped my what? How does that shape your interest, the the connection with the oh. Scottish Irish heritage? Because that's a strong well, connection. My sister did genealogy on us, and uh, I did a DNA test, and 
cheetah DNA test, and we turn out to be quite a bit Scots, although uh, my religion was at one time Roman Catholicism. Um, I rejected it because it was uh, not friendly to LGBT people. That's for sure. Very unfriendly. Hopefully that will change uh, in the long run. Yeah, I became an Episcopalian because they accept uh, people like me. Uh, and uh, I, I started a transition in 2005 and uh, became a woman in 2015. So I am a transgender woman myself. <laughs> well, congratulations. I'm glad that uh, we have a new administration which is going to support those kind of things. Yeah. It does make a very... We're glad about that. Yeah, so I think the whole world is glad about that, the big change. Uh, yeah. The, our, our country has fallen back considerably in regards to uh, higher consciousness and the sciences, etc. And I'm glad that uh, we're moving in a, in a direction I think we're all going to be very proud of. We're all one people on one planet. That's my my bias and that we should be able yeah. to easily work together. Um, and unfortunately, that's not what was happening for our past four years. It was a totally different yeah. kind of a country we had here, with a president who didn't even know anything about a constitution, which is was that's criminal, as far as I'm scary. concerned. That was scary. Yes, it, is, it was, and it still is right now. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Really, oh, we got to take a break here on 21st Century Radio with our guest... Teresa Cross, Secrets of the Druids from Indo-European Origins to Modern Practices. This is Jim Willis, author of Lost Civilizations, The Secret Histories and Suppressed Technologies of the Ancients. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Please contact me, though, at www.jimwillis.net to learn about my other books and projects because I'd love to hear from you. And we're back. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and we return now to our guest. Okay, my next question for $30,000. Okay, here goes. Tell us about some of the various druidic groups that you associated with in your past. Um, well, we had the Craig uh, Galtique Holvedel of Brittany, and that was the last one I had contact with. Before, returned to my faith in uh, in uh, the uh, Abrahamic religion of Christianity. Um, one of the things that led me to go back to being a Christian was my study of uh, Vedic literature and uh, Hindu tradition. I run into a philosophy called Veda Abeda. Vedanta, which is different from most people practice Advaita Vedanta. Well, and what that means is that they believe we're all one with the Supreme Godhead. Mm -hmm. That's Advaita Vedanta. And it means non-dual, non-dual. Um, but in Veda Veda Dvaita Vedanta, 
we believe that we seem to be one with the divine Godhead, but we are we are different. We we are are dependent upon the to the Brahman or uh, Supreme Godhead. And that's what got me back into looking into Christianity again, mm-hmm. because I believed in the incarnation. When you were... Uh, and, oh, excuse me. Go ahead. Uh, well, in case in point now, I was attracted to the theology of John Scotus Ariagena, who was an Irish uh, uh, scholastic uh, teacher over in uh, France in the ninth uh, century. So he was deemed a heretic because he seemed seemed to be a pantheist, but really he was a panentheist. He believed God was in everything, in the, mm-hmm. and he also believed in uh, he was also separate from everything. At the same time, it seems paradoxical, but the panentheism believes everything is God, and and that uh, God is also beyond as well as in everything, beyond everything. So, I was attracted to that philosophy and started studying uh, the theology of the church. So I was thinking of writing a book on Celtic Christianity because it's become a hot topic and I am also a member of the community of Aiden and Hilda. So we're joining that now. When when you were were you you were a Roman Catholic at one time? Yeah. Did you serve on the altar? Uh no no I didn't. Oh, I was going to ask that. The reason why I asked that question is I was going to be a priest at one time. And uh, unfortunately, well, fortunately, I got involved with the Dead Sea Scrolls and other things, and that changed changed me radically from that standpoint. But the Mass of the Holy Eucharist is some magical experience. Um, mm-hmm. I, I used to see things up on the altar during the process of uh, the of the that particular uh, that particular work which i would want to talk to at times uh with the with the priests but i was never allowed to do until i became very close to a number of nuns and when i uh-huh. mentioned to them do you see the the sparks and the other lights that are up there going on during the Mass of the Holy Eucharist. And they said, certainly, certainly. And I said, well, how come the priests, the priests all say no, they don't see any of that? Um, how would you answer something like that? Well, um, there are certain charismas that uh, God puts on people. they got a gift for something which usually becomes what they love to do for a living, because mm-hmm. everybody has a purpose in life, or dharma. And um, St. Paul talks about it, and some priests, they uh, 
they uh, just don't have that gift. They may have a gift for something else, like being a priest is a gift of a vocation and um, holy orders. But when they're up there uh, consecrating the Mass as a sacrifice, it commemorates, there are so many commemorations in it, and there are so many uh, people who get caught up in the, uh, the consecration of the host and wine mm-hmm. into the body and blood of Jesus. And uh, some people catch it symbolically and some people don't. Some mm-hmm. people think things is literal. And uh, some of the, the Protestant sects that broke off in the uh, 16th century said it was only symbolic. It was just a memorial. Mm-hmm. And that was condemned as heresy. But in Irish Christianity, they saw it both ways. Yes. Because we read a, I read an old Irish treatise on the Holy Eucharist that was included in the back of the uh, Stowe Missal, and it talks about, it tells you how the uh, Eucharist, what a, each part of the Mass symbolizes. And it's pretty powerful stuff. I'll see. So, um, and in fact, Druidic sacrifices were kind of like Eucharist in that in that sense too. They believed they were building the world mm-hmm. uh, out of mesocosm of uh, the sacrifice of animals and people partaking of it. Some of, some of the sacrifices seem a little bizarre to us today. And with that, I could reveal what the real, one of the secrets of the Druids, that people always wonder, what did a Druid do yes. as a sacrifice? Mm-hmm. I'm all ears. They'd be surprised. They'd be surprised to know that the Druid, like a Brahmin priest of uh, Vedic Indian sacrifices before they became vegetarian, um, was that they sat to the side, watched the whole procedure, and made sure no mistakes were made. Hmm. They didn't really do anything physical. And the reason we know this, the reason I know it, is because um, the bardic performance of Aphili, Aphili composed a poem. And it's usually a praise poem of the uh, king or the champion of their warriors. And they wrote them, or they composed them, rather, that when a performance of it was taken up, they were the master of, the filly was the master of ceremonies. He didn't perform, or she didn't perform, her actual work, it was actually performed by a rhapsodist, one who who sang and chanted the uh, poem, and the Philly was there to conduct it. 
you see that the being master of ceremonies, they were uh, judging and presiding over. I see. I see. Interesting, isn't it? Yes, it is. I, I mean, I, 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 that they did like the Brahmins of India. And there are still Brahmins in India. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're a class or a caste, but there's still those that go to memorize the Vedas by rote. I mean, they actually sing them over and over again until they memorize the, liter- the literary uh, piece, even though it later got written down. I understand you are currently a member of a historical reenactment group called the Adrian Empire, where you play yeah. a, I don't think I'm going to pronounce this right, Clarissac Celtic Harp? No, it's a Clarissac Celtic Harp? Oh, the Clarissac. The Clarissac, yeah. thank you. I have a Clarissac is a uh, Celtic style harp. Well, tell us what that. What is that yeah. all about? It's like a society of creative anachronism, um, which uh, we put on the garb and we go and we do. Uh, we watch battles and we uh, uh, participate in various guilds in which we do certain things. Are there specific? Make up a hobby like. Are there specific? Going. Huh? Are there specific battles that you would reenact? Are there certain battles that are are so important uh, to that particular history and time that that um, they are that you deliberately reenact them? Yeah. Well, we don't reenact actual battles like um, um, a lot of. A lot of groups do. We kind of, we have our own little kingdoms, and we have our own titles and everything that you earn. And um, we basically uh, fulfill uh, our hobbies. And uh, and sometimes there are battles, and. Uh, they're reenacting what a medieval battle would be like. But right now, we're battling the break that we need to take our final break on 21st Century Radio with our guest, Teresa Cross, Secrets of the Druids, from the Indo-European Origins to Modern Practices, second edition. We'll be right back, right after these messages. My name is Sarah Taft, and I'm the author of Mary Magdalene Shaman. You can see it on my website, which is at sarataft.com. And in this, you can see my paintings of Mary Magdalene and read my relationship to her and how she healed me through a liver transplant. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. I hope you enjoy yourself. And we're back. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio. Learn more about us at www.21stCenturyRadio.com. 
Of course, our guest is Teresa Cross, and we suggest that you purchase this copy of the book. And we could, uh, if we could bribe you into it by giving you one of, a copy of our books, if you purchase a copy this book. Obviously, we want you to have a, a library so that when you have problems like we have today in the world, you have something to read and, <laughs> and learn, yeah. and not just watch. Cowboys and Indians on on uh, on television. Um, the how are the Scottish Highlanders related to the Irish? Oh yeah, um, that's an interesting topic. Um, Irish uh, people around the fourth uh, century began uh, colonizing their kingdom of Dalriada to. Uh, Scotland. Mm. Uh, I would say this. Uh, I think this happened around the 300s, and uh, part of uh, part of Scotland was picked, picked land, and uh, that's a, a whole other topic that could take an hour to explain. But there were picks there, and the Scots were Irish, were Gaels. Mm-hmm. Uh, these words are all kind of synonymous. You have uh, the Gales or the um, uh, Scots, Scoti, as they call it in Latin. And uh, they had uh, landed in uh, southwestern uh, Scotland, just north of the Welsh of Strathclyde, because Welsh weren't confined to Wales in those days. And they set up a colony at Dunod, and uh, they uh, uh, spread the Gaelic language there. And uh, Saint Columba was the one who was exiled to uh, exiled himself to uh, uh, the Isle of Iona and uh, founded a, uh, a monastery there. And Anyway, but there were a lot of Scots who were still pagan in those days, and so Scotland inherited the culture of, that they brought with them from Ireland. Mm-hmm. And it still had close contact with each other up until the 1600s, and the languages were divert, uh, um, were diverting from each other by that time, and it developed in a Scottish Gaelic, which is different to Irish mm-hmm. in many ways, and it's very similar. Their uh, verb, subject, object is the uh, order, word order that they use, and you can find a lot of similarities between Irish dialects, uh, particularly of Northern Ireland, Donegal, mm. and similarities with Scottish Gaelic, and um, I took up that language, although I had been a member of the uh, Gaelic League, I lived in Dallas, Um, I learned a lot of Irish, and I taught Boonrong Irish, which is beginner's Irish, I converted over to studying the Scots uh, language, which is different enough to be confusing, (laughs) but... uh, (laughs) I overcome that. <laughs> were the uh, Celts matriarchal, and if not, were there any ways that their culture was woman-centered? 
women had a lot of power. Women had uh, the rights of uh, inheriting their own property, and uh, there was there was at one time seven forms of marriage, where you know it was marriage by uh, child marriage, from which you could be married for a year and a day, and there was uh, which is often called hand fasting, and then there's uh, uh, women inherited their own property, so if they divorced, um, they retained it. They didn't lose it to the marriage. Uh, That's most important. So, That's most important. Because and they did... Uh, mm-hmm. It's just that women have all had such a terrible situation in regards to that marriage when uh, they lose everything. In the past, they lost everything. Uh, when they were divorced, yeah, it was it was terrible. Uh, the uh, you note that the whole cycle of time and space, as we know it, is an endless cycle of creation and devast and destruction. How would you compare and that? Re- recreation, yeah, and uh, uh, the European belief. Uh, there was a uh, Gaul who was asked, what is it you fear? I fear uh, nothing but that the sky should fall. And uh, another, they believed that, um, and this is an Indo-European thing, too, is they believed that fire and water would would could uh, destroy the earth but uh, as a human soul is indestructible. Yes. Even though fire and water could prevail. So uh, water was considered an unimportant boundary, kind of like in Greek mythology, it was the River Styx and the River Lethe, which uh, uh, you cross over with the boatman Chiron, but his uh, ferry. And they put coins on people on the body's eyes as a payment to Chiron for burying them across the Lethe and the sticks, river sticks. And uh, what we have in uh, Celtic mythology, we don't we don't have a uh, story about that because uh, obviously that was pagan doctrine that was repressed, but uh, the Christian belief in uh, the destruction of the world and uh, a a new Jerusalem being built and paradise and all that is uh, very similar to what they already believed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the key elements as to how Christianity caught a foothold with as to St. Patrick and St. Palladius. Um, the uh, world in the Norse mythology is similar. They believe in Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods, and the um, and fire and ice being the end of it. But uh, uh, there were similar ideas in, in India. And... Uh, 
And the Greeks believed in certain ages, you know, the, the Bronze Age or the Age of Iron and the uh, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, let's see, I can't give any details, but if you read Works and Days by uh, Hesiod, you get an idea of what what that count, how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a it's an endless cycle of creation, destruction, and recreation. How much can we rely on classical sources? Well, there's the, the so-called Posidonian sources of a guy who had actually traveled in Gaul and learned from the natives, but uh, there was uh, um, the other commentators from uh, a later time were romanticizing the Druids, so you got to be careful with mm-hmm. some of this information because they were uh, they they were holding them up as noble savages. Yeah. So either the propaganda was pro, very pro Druidic, or it was very anti-Druidic. You know, I'm thinking of the world as different barbarians and. You know, the Greeks thought they were the best, <laughs> and uh, they looked down at the uh, other people. So there was some prejudice going on. Well, sure there is. Now, um, this uh, question I'm going to give you right now is kind of tough, but we got a little, we got some time to do it. How are our physical bodies? microcosms of our of the multiverse oh yeah well we got two minutes this this as the sacrifice was a mesocosm which means a, a middle world scale the body is the individual and uh, the uh, various parts of there was a uh, stories in Indo-European mythology of how uh, a giant is taken and he's slain and his body becomes, his bones become the stones, his flesh becomes the, the soil, his blood becomes the waters, and uh, his... Uh, Hair becomes the vegetation, and all, and so on. All these analogs, and uh, these, um, it works both ways. You know, you can mm-hmm. be a, a a giant who's dismembered, and they make the universe out of him, or um, on the other hand, uh, we return to the earth in those forms, but uh, the soul prevails. Um, the uh, analogs uh, are taken from a mythology that doesn't exist anymore in the Celtic group, but we get it in the 
giant emer, Y-M-I-R, and they make the universe out of them. Well, there, indeed, there were giants. The Smithsonian Institute is dead wrong, saying there are no such things, but there were giants, and uh, there are many books out in this particular area. And we're out of time. Teresa, thank you very much for joining us. I learned so much from you, and I greatly appreciate your work. <laughs> 